So this podcast is going to be looking at the statement, world politics is a man's game, which was stated in 1988 by Anne Tickner, and we're going to be discussing whether the statement is relevant 31 years later in 2019. Um, I'm doing this mainly for personal gain because I'm writing an essay on it, so let's kind of dive into it. So the first thing to pick out is we're looking at relevance here, we're not looking at whether it should or should not be true, or whether, you know, it is 100% the case still, or 100% not the case. We're looking at purely its relevance to the current system of world politics. So you can kind of look at different countries here, because for some countries, world politics is being uh, becoming increasingly more inclusive. But in the vast majority of systems, representation is not a massive issue, um, as is inclusion and uh, female-based issues being included in mainstream discussion. So it's obvious that there is a long way to go still. So when I'm looking at this question, I think I'm going to split it into three main sections um, when it comes to the actual argument. So, first of all, I'm going to be putting forward the idea here that it is still very much relevant. Um, even though it should theoretically be less relevant because uh, much more gains should have been made um, in increasing female representation. But, however, I believe it's almost more relevant now because the obstacles put in the way of women are so much more subtle and so much harder to draw attention to than they used to be. It almost makes it harder to um, to grow the position of women in the system because it's so much more difficult to pick out what needs to change. So, first of all, kind of you've got to define world politics here. So. The concept of world politics has kind of expanded a lot in recent years because it used to be very much state-centric from a very realist perspective, but with kind of the rise in more liberal views during the 20th century and now a more kind of post-colonial, uh, post-structuralist uh, opinion kind of growing in the political community, um, the concept of world politics is much broader. So it covers global community, it covers organisations, it covers international uh, individual states, individual citizens and international organisations. So there are lots of different layers uh, going down more and more narrowly towards kind of state level and then individual level. But it's still all encompassed under world politics. Um, so it's kind of important to keep this in mind because the definition of world politics, it very relevant when you're looking at the statement of uh, world politics being a man's game because you've got to understand what it is what structure we're looking at and why why this perception of it being a man's game has perpetuated for a solid 30 years after it was first stated by Tickner so I said earlier I was going to split this into three main sections so the first section is going to be looking at the uh, international level, so international organisations like the UN and NGOs, 
Uh, then I'm going to look at it at state level because the state is still considered one of the most key important actors in the international system. And then after that, I'm going to look at more of an individual level when it comes to political engagement or apathy um, and uh, how kind of individual issues are either listened to or not listened to within these different political systems. So first of all, international organisations. This is kind of the top level. So there have been kind of some types of improvement when it comes to this. Uh, for instance, like the UN created the United Nations Entity for Gender Equality, um, which became functional in 2011. I think it came about in 2010, technically speaking. Um, and that united the branches of the UN that were working exclusively on women's issues as separate entities. Uh, there were a number of these. Then you have you have these other issues though that kind of overshadow this improvement. So focusing in on the UN in particular, because I have a number of statistics on that, there is a very solid glass ceiling situation going on. Now the glass ceiling issue is a very famous issue that's cropped up in a number of different places in a number of different ways. Um, you know, it's a notable thing in businesses, um, if you look at kind of how many women are in high positions in businesses, and the same issue comes about when you look at the UN. So overall, in a lot of the United Nations, um, in the United Nations bodies, uh, the little branches that they have, there's actually quite a good level of overall equality. So, for instance, if you look at the World Health World Health Organization, these stats are from about uh, I think between two thousand and five and two thousand and fifteen. Um, the total percent of the people who work for the World Health Organization, the, the percent that's women, is normally around kind of forty percent in general. In, uh, within this time frame, so kind of ranging, I think between thirty six percent and 43%. So slightly under 50%, but still not horrific in terms of representation. But then if you split this down, if you break it down into P1 to P5 jobs and D1 to UG jobs, which um, if you don't know, P1, P2, P3, P4 and P5, those are slightly lower paid, kind of lower experience, lower authority jobs within the UN. And then D1, D2 and UG are the higher authority, higher paid jobs within the UN. Um, so if you look at P1, for instance, in 2015, 60% uh, of employees there were female. Um, again, in 2015, if you look at P2, 64% were female. Uh, P3 was 52%, P4 was 44% and P5 was 38%. Now you can kind of see the percentages slowly going down in these different sections. And it's much more notable when you move on to the D1, D2 and UG jobs. Because in D1, in 2015, only 25% of employees were female. In D2, only 21% were. And in UG, only 39% were. So overall, despite an increase in overall... Um, overall uh, percentage of women employed actually in terms of the higher paid jobs there's actually been no improvement at all
So, for instance, you know, in 2005, in D2, there was 24% female in the WHO. In 2015, it was 21%. So it's no change, really, whatsoever. So there hasn't really been the change where it's needed because the way kind of these hierarchies work, obviously, as most hierarchies work, is you can have a lot more power, a lot more influence, and you can put forward a lot more of your own ideas if you're in a position of higher authority. And there is no increase in women in higher authority jobs, therefore they are still unable to make the same impact that men are within these organisations. It just looks as if it's improved on the surface. So this is a major issue when it comes to international politics. And it becomes even more important when you look at the fact that this is world politics. It's literally, the clue's in their name, it's meant to represent the entire world. And these international organisations are meant to represent all countries, all genders, all um, ethnicities. It's meant to be a very kind of all-round organisation like the UN. But it's not, essentially. So that's the main kind of information when it comes to the um, in the international organisation level. Um, there's still a huge imbalance, there's more tangible power in the hands of male figures. And so overall, it's still very, very relevant, the statement, you know, world politics is a man's game when you go to the IGO level. Because not enough change has been made, not enough um, actual tangible change or transition of power has been made. It's just very much kind of surface change, because as it's noted by, I can't remember who the author of this is, I think it is, it's edited by Terence Ball, I'm not quite sure who the author is, but it's a book called Idioms of Inquiry, and this book notes that the claim for a feminist discourse is usually met with considerable scepticism from the men who study politics. This isn't limited to just studying politics, in my opinion, this is across the board, um, what tends to happen is there's a huge resistance to change because for men they have always held this kind of higher position in terms of uh, political power because of historical kind of issues with misogyny and the patriarchy and all of that so that's left that's left us in a position where the smallest bit of change can seem like a drastic swing for the people who are used to being in control it's it's not it's not making it easy essentially to make the necessary changes so the next kind of level that i want to look at is um politics at a state level so we've looked at igos and kind of the overarching international level now i'm bringing it down to a state level this is very important when it comes to world politics because the state is still considered to be one of the key global actors. Even in liberal international thought, the state is still noted to be incredibly important, even though they do kind of span out to other other kind of um, organisations. So it's, again, it's quite frustrating when it comes to the statistics of this because there is a massive imbalance between male and female representation when it comes to things like leaders of states, heads of states. So 
a good example of kind of this issue is if you look at the G20 summit this year in 2019, um, obviously 20 world leaders coming together to discuss major international issues. Uh, there were three women out of the 20. And one of those women aren't even in power anymore. Theresa May, she's been booted out of office in the UK and it's now Boris Johnson. So it's now two out of 20, which you've got to admit, it's not a very good record. In 2017, there were only 15 female world leaders in office and eight of those were their country's first women in power. So if you think about that, before... 2017 <laughs> like it it was virtually unheard of to be honest because I feel like there's 193 UN member states right and then 15 of those recognized states are female world leaders they still represent fewer than 10% of these UN nations it's a tiny amount so this is obviously very unrepresentative of the global population because as everyone kind of knows it's 50 50 male female roughly so why on earth why on earth is it that we have barely any female heads of state at all 77 states in the world have never had a female head of state at all so if the state wasn't such an influential factor, it might not be such a problem still, but because the state is still central, it's, I believe, quite a major issue. So this kind of doesn't just go as shallow as the heads of state. If you also look at the governing bodies of each state, um, it's, again not very positive so let me find some statistics that i've written down somewhere here in my very 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 messy handwriting um as of february 2019 about 24 percent of all national parliaments were women which it, it is a slow increase from 11.3 percent in 1995 it's not as much of an increase at all um, globally, there are 27 states where women account for less than 10% of parliamentarians in single or lower houses, and three have no women at all. So that is a massive, massive problem when it comes to representation. And you see, the big knock-on impact of this is when you don't have very many women in positions of influence or power within a governing body or as heads of state, it means that vital women's issues that are often, you know, global issues are incredibly overshadowed or forgotten or sidelined. So an example of this is possibly period poverty. So that's a huge issue that affects a massive number of people, but it's not discussed frequently enough or in high profile enough scenarios for it to get enough attention in terms of policy making, etc, etc. So you know, most of these ideas, most of these discussions begin at a state level and then they get taken from that state level to the international bodies. The more attention is brought to it at a state level, the more attention is given to it globally. Therefore, these issues, they start at a state level and then they fail to gain enough traction because of the lack of female representation. Because let's be real, 
it's very difficult for people who haven't had any experience of those kinds of situations to empathise enough to realise how much of an issue it is. So if you have cisgender men, they are never going to have, or they will never have dealt with issues with periods and how much they cost and how much of an inconvenience they can be and how much of an effect they can have on education and have on work. So this makes it a massive uh, it makes it much more difficult for it to be discussed properly in certain chambers because if a uh, parliamentary body is only 25, let's say 25 or 30, let's say 30% female because that's roughly um, how much, uh, how many women there are in the UK parliament. If only 30% of the parliament is female and those women are spread over different political parties, one political party is going to be controlling the chamber, that's the government. They generally control what goes in and out, what gets discussed. They determine, you know, the legislative programme. There are a few exceptions when it comes to kind of um, petitions and um, like single member bills, all that kind of thing. But generally speaking, the main legislative discussion is put forward by the government. So... The governing party, they might, you know, they might only have, let's say, 10% of that 30% of women, maybe 15%, 12%. So they'll have a really difficult time pushing these issues to the front of the agenda because there's not enough voices to make this heard, to make it a key issue or to vote it in to be a key issue. And so what ends up happening is you end up with um, party members having to kind of cross party allegiances just to create enough impact to get these things in motion. And that takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of organisation and coordination. And it kind of shows how women are at a disadvantage when it comes to pushing female only issues, because you've got to make your voice that much louder when you don't have that representation there. It's, it's it's frustrating from the perspective of a woman because you know about all these different things that need to get changed or reformed. Like, for instance, uh, the legislative processes around rape and sexual assault are so significantly flawed. And this is quite obvious and it's been recognised because the amount of rapes in the UK, for example, are increasing, but the number of convictions for rape are decreasing. Therefore, it's clear that there is something wrong with the system. But this isn't being discussed. It isn't being fixed. There is no kind of proposed amendments to any legislature to make sure that at least some forms of improvements are made. But it's an issue that is going to affect a great number of women because huge amounts of women face these kinds of sexual abuses. In their lifetime. So it amounts to a large deal of the population that is going to be affected by these laws that aren't being changed, that aren't being reformed, that aren't being properly observed by the parliament because there aren't enough women in these bodies to push it forward on both a state level and on the international level when it comes to things like sexual assault, like period poverty, issues that are going to affect every woman in the world and therefore should definitely be considered to be underneath the umbrella of world politics because, again, going back to the definition, it's world politics and 
this is an issue that is going to, well, these are issues that will affect the global community, a huge number of the global community. So that's the impact of a state level. And I think that's probably one of the most important levels to look at because that's kind of where everything else stems from. Because if you have representation at a state level, you can often encourage more participation on an individual level because you feel like you're being represented, represented properly in your body and it encourages far more participation. And it also has an impact at an international level because the more women you have at a state level, the more women you have going to represent that state at an international level, and therefore the more issues can be discussed and coordinated, you know, responses coordinated at the international level because they're being brought up from the state level up to there. So the last thing that I was going to discuss is differences in political engagement. I don't have many notes on this yet, but it's something that I think will definitely be useful to have a look at because in many countries involvement is still limited when it comes to women. Um, there are you know, a few states still where um, women kind of have to be accompanied by a man, I believe, to go and vote, which is a huge issue because it restricts their freedom to vote. Uh, for certain people or places and you've also got issues like standing for election and how women are viewed when they initially enter the political sphere or discuss politics and this is where the kind of societal views come in when we're talking about misogyny and the patriarchy um, it's kind of accepted at this point that women face a lot more um, criticism when it comes to their involvement in politics because, again, it's this resistance to change in power. There is always going to be resistance to power change because those in power never want to lose it. That's something that's generally accepted as if you have power, you're going to be very unlikely to want to give it up. And so men have a lot of power in society and a lot of uh, cisgender men do not want to give up that power that they have managed to consolidate over hundreds of years and haven't really had challenged to this kind of extent before. So there are lots of ideas that are still perpetuated in society about um, politics being very a very masculine uh, area of, or profession. So, for instance, if you look at the two female prime ministers that we've had in the UK, uh, both of them have been highly criticised for any of their more feminine values, and both of them have had to highly masculinate themselves to be taken more seriously. So, for instance, if you look at even what they wear, if you look at Margaret Thatcher and uh, Theresa May, they wear often kind of power suit style clothes so big shoulders kind of widens them it masculinates their appearance it makes them appear more masculine and therefore uh, be more appealing to the men who are in politics it's something that i've noticed in a number of areas uh, there are also kind of differences in communication so it's encouraged for uh, women to communicate in the same way as men are 
So there's an article that I found called Communication Styles and Female Candidates, and it's a study of political advertising during the Senate elections in America in 1986. And it looks at communication strategies that were used by female politicians, specifically in television advertisement, uh, looking at kind of their style of language and how different the campaigns were. Um, so let me have a scroll through for a second. Um, I should have probably read through this properly before making this. That would have definitely been a very, very good idea. So it notes women running for political offices face many barriers to success. A lot of them are institutional, media generated. That's something that I should have pointed out whilst talking about um, uh, Theresa May and uh, Margaret Thatcher. Uh, the, the media often more critical um especially when it comes to trees and may of small things appearance wise like with male politicians it's very rare that their outfit or you know that a particular color tie will be scrutinized to the extent that you know a particular pair of shoes would do for a female politician Coverage of female candidates often focuses on appearance, age and family status, while coverage of male counterparts rarely address these factors. That's another conclusion brought from this study of political advertising in the 80s. And I'd argue that this has not changed much at all. There is still, I mean, thankfully, well, not thankfully, but um, <laughs> it has widened in some areas like men are now being questioned more on kind of family values. For instance, everyone trying to figure out how many kids Boris Johnson has this year, which I, I still don't have an answer to. <laughs> Might need to Wikipedia that. Um, but still, there is a massive imbalance. Like when it comes to age, women are much more likely to be criticised for appearance and age than they are when it comes to men. Also, when it comes to health, if you look at Trump, I mean... He's old, he's not very well, he's not good looking, but that doesn't really matter when it comes to everything else. I mean, there are lots of other things that matter with him, but still, that's not one of the key things that's covered. Whereas with Hillary Clinton, much more commentary on things like that about her, you know, uh, her spouse, about her family, about her appearance. It's, it's, it, it's tiring. this kind of makes political advertising almost more important for women because they've got to put more effort into creating a certain image than men do. It's quite interesting because research was done for this paper, a female communication style, and it suggested that women tended to be less aggressive and assertive in their speeches and to have a more supportive style than men. Uh, and Although women's speech is generally evaluated to be less credible than um, men's speech, uh, they could be penalised when they adopted a more masculine style. So as soon as female speakers were um, adopt an aggressive style, they were evaluated negatively in this study. Which means that basically women are encouraged to be like men, but as soon as they are acting more masculine, they then get criticised for that. So basically you cannot win at all is the kind of conclusion that I draw from this study. 
So now we need to kind of bring this back to the question, which is about politics being a man's game. Now, all of these different issues when it comes to political engagement and the way that women are treated as individuals within politics, they really contribute back to this because it's it shows the resistance to letting to men letting go of this power and giving it to women because women are far more criticised, women have to face far more intrusive questions and they're often, you know, they often end up in these situations where, you know, you can't win. All these things where, you know, if you adopt a too, too aggressive style, it's like, oh, that they're, you know, it's, I think, I can't remember, there was a phrase that Trump used, I think he uses the phrase crazy women or something like that. If you're too aggressive or too passionate, you're dubbed crazy. And then if you're not passionate enough, then they're like, you. well, they have no charisma. They have no uh, proper identity, no proper personality. They're not recognisable enough. So again, it's that kind of idea of not being able to win and the clinging on of men to power. And also then you can link back to the politics at a state level. Um, I need to find some statistics on this, but I believe that the less women there are in a certain body, the less engaged women are, because if you don't see yourself within politics, then it's hard to feel very engaged with it, because you don't feel like it's as worth much to you, because you don't feel like people will understand as much your issues and where you are coming from. So, kind of in conclusion... <laughs> This statement, politics was a man's game, is still very, very much relevant after 30 years. Um, I'd say more relevant because there have been claims that all of these improvements are being made when in reality, where improvements are made, more obstacles seem to be put in elsewhere. So for instance, you know, higher representation, for instance, um, in the UN counterterrorism department, 48% of their staff overall were women in 2015, but 0% were in D1 to USG roles. 0%. So all of those people were concentrated in the lower paid, lower experience jobs. None of them were in the higher authority positions at all. So it's almost like the problems have been shifted elsewhere. It's like when there's flooding in one area and they just make a dam and push the floods to the next village along. It's that kind of system that is going on. So yes, in conclusion, at all levels, in international organisations, uh, at a state level, and at an individual level, when you look at individual figures in politics, it's still a man's game. It's still controlled by the man and women have to play by the men's rules in order to get even a smidge of the power that men end up with. <laughs>